I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello. I'm John Elledge, and this is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast. I have a bad habit. I have many bad habits. But the particular bad habit I'm talking about on this occasion is addressing the same question to the same politician on Twitter repeatedly, knowing for a while they're probably not going to answer. And, you know, I do this partly because I kind of think it's, you know, we should be trying to get answers out of these guys. Partly because the refusal to answer is often instructive. And partly just to relieve the monotony of, of a fairly mundane and tedious existence. But I was doing this the other week with one of the one of the Conservatives running to be uh, the party's candidate to be the next mayor of London in 2020, uh, when they're hoping to, to unseat Sadiq Khan. And they didn't answer. I wasn't really expecting them to answer. But after a while, I got an email from their, their comms guy saying, you know, actually, the candidate will answer your questions. But instead of just sending a tweet, they'd, they'd really like to come on Skylines and do that. And I thought about this and I thought, well, yeah, I mean, that would be kind of cool. But there's still three candidates on the shortlist. So I should really offer uh, the slot to, to all of them. You know, I shouldn't really play favourites in, in internal Conservative Party elections. So so I made that offer. And that's what this week is going to be about. Uh, we're going to do more than one podcast. We're going to speak to to the different candidates. And we're going we're gonna to hear what they've got to say about you know, how they would run this not particularly Tory-friendly city to give us some sense of, you know, what what tone the the very long election campaign we're looking down the barrel of here. It's probably going to be sort of, I've lost track of the time, it's, what, 20 months to go, something like that, before the next mayoral election. So that's that's a long time that whoever the Tory party picks is going to be throwing rocks at Sadiq Khan. So I, I thought it was kind of a good moment to kind of get a sense of the election. I'm not going to do them all in one episode, but the party selection uh, is underway very shortly. So before before they pick their candidate, I thought I should really get these out. So we're going to put them all out this week. So in alphabetical order, let's do this. First up, we have Sean Bailey. If you're not aware of him, he grew up in a Jamaican family in North Kensington. Uh, he first came to prominence about 10 years ago as one of David Cameron's A-listers, the hand-picked candidates that, that Cameron hoped would showcase a new, more diverse Conservative Party in the run-up to the, the 2010 election. Uh, that didn't really work out very well for many of the people on that list. Bailey himself uh, stood for Parliament in Hammersmith that year and lost to the Labour Party. Uh, but, you know, he stuck around. He became David Cameron's special advisor on youth and crime and in 2016 was elected to the London Assembly. 
In 2017, he stood for, for Parliament again in Lewisham, Western Penge. He failed to get elected again. But now he's, he's running for mayor. So, let's hear what he's got to say. Over to Sean. Okay, you you might have gathered from that that we do not, in fact, have an interview with Sean Bailey. Sadly, the great man is far too busy to to talk to little old us. So while we will be hearing from his rivals for the Conservative mayoral nomination, uh, Sean Bailey sent his apologies. I will continue to push for that, but in the meantime, you'll just have to make do with the strains of uh, Kevin MacLeod's Casa Bossa Nova. Okay, okay, enough enough mucking around, at least for the moment. We did, as I say, we did manage to get uh, actual interviews with, with the other two candidates. So, first up, we have Andrew Boff. He's a former leader of Hillingdon Council, a former councillor in Hackney. And he's also a bit of a veteran of this particular contest. He sought the Conservative mayoral nomination uh, four times now. This is his fifth. So, he sought it in 2000, 2004, 2008 and 2016. Uh, he even, last time around, he actually made the shortlist. So, perhaps this is going to finally be his year. He's been a very visible figure on the London political scene for a long time as a member of the Greater London Authority. And he, you know, as you'll, you'll hear from the conversation we're about to have, he, he sought a lot about policy, which is... You know, to be fair, what we like around here. So, let's have a chat with Andrew. Okay, if we could start with one of the policy areas that's probably most important to, to many people listening to this will be housing. How do you see the, the, the housing situation in London as it stands? Well, it's in crisis and has been for some period. And these are the symptoms of of successive governments not investing in housing or not allowing investing in housing over the past 30 odd years um and so every th- all, all all the symptoms of that the the uh the very high rents that there are the lack of availability of what people call affordable housing and the availability of homes that people can buy all down to just not building and and we we haven't had policies uh, in the past that have been particularly friendly to those people who want to develop. And we need more people developing. It's, it's as simple as that. We need more people wanting to get in the business of providing housing. And that's the kind of change that I want to put into place uh, if I'm elected mayor. So let's unpack that a little bit. There are a number of different problems that kind of get bundled together as this thing we call the there's housing a, There's crisis. a lot of separate markets yeah. that people call the housing markets, yeah, and it's actually quite. a lots of separate ones. You're so, right. yeah, we talk about the fall in ownership numbers. Yeah. There's um, the poor quality of a lot of private rental stuff. There's the difficulty of getting hold of, of social housing. Do any of those strike you as a particular priority or, or would you be more sort of focused in just kind of like trying to improve supply and hoping to address all of those that way? Well, I think that they, um, we've got ourselves very confused over, over what affordable is. Uh, and I think the very word affordable, I sometimes think, should be banned from the English language because in, to many people it means absolutely nothing. It says it represents homes that they can afford. I'm, I'm very keen on reintroducing, for example, council housing 
which is so gone out of fashion um, because of the the policies of success, again successive governments and not enabling local authorities to send the pro, sell the proceeds of things like rights to buy. So um, I am going to use uh, some of the housing funds to assist uh, the boroughs to uh, start a whole new program of council housing. I think it's the uh, best form of social housing. Um, and I think it needs to be high quality. And, and I, when I say council houses, I tend to mean houses because any emphasis, as far as I'm concerned, is on relieving overcrowding. As, as you may know, there are 350,000 young people being brought up in overcrowded conditions in London. Mm. That, has, that has really poor effects upon their uh, educational outcomes, their, edu- their, their health. Um, and we need to resolve it. And that's why I find it slightly astonishing that the current mayor has abandoned uh, any targets for building the larger family homes in order to resolve overcrowding. So larger family council houses will be a priority of mine. Um, But that's just the social housing market. If we're talking about homes to buy, uh, we need to make more homes, uh, uh, land available. We need to make it easier for developers to develop. And there's a number of things we can do there. Top of the list is to make it easy for under, for developers to understand what their obligations are going to be. At the moment, as you know, if you want to do a large development in London, there is a, a wrangle about the number of affordable homes that you have to provide. Uh, Sadiq Khan has set a political target of 50%. Actually, I think that gets in the way of people wanting to develop homes in, in London. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to replace that. I'm going to seek to replace that with a fixed levy that there will be on the gross development value of the of of the project. Of the, a percentage of the a percentage. I don't know. Okay. Don't push me on what that percentage would be because it's going to be a levy and mm. uh, it's two year two years away from till it happens. What that will do is it will mean that developers suddenly have complete certainty as about what their obligations are. And that levy that can then go towards the local housing programs of the council. And the council can choose to do a number of things with those. I would like them to build council houses. Uh, they might want to buy into that existing development. It, it just makes it easier to develop. And this is one of the problems that we've had in London is that so many developers are, uh, think it's not worth their while. So to be clear, there'd be like a bit of top slice which would go to the council yeah. responsible yeah. for the, which is basically the planning authority here. Yes, yes, pr- pretty much. That's the usual thing that will happen. And obviously there's different configurations of that depending on the, the kind of site. But it's about providing certainty. What about the GLA itself? Because in sort of the, the glory days of, of council housing in London, the GLC and before that the London County Council were, were actually fairly major developers in their own right, weren't they? Do you see a role for London-wide government getting back into this? I'm not unsympathetic to that, but I'm more sympathetic to doing that in partnership with the boroughs. And as I've said, I will, I will financially assist those boroughs who wish to do council housing because, of course, it's still, there's still too many rules around you know, what you can't build, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the amount that you can dedicate to building council homes I, 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 I will help them out uh, because I you know I was born in a council house I, I know what the value of those homes is in terms of uh, providing uh, people secure housing alleviating social need and, and indeed providing for social mobility uh, and all those things as far as I'm concerned are a core to what a conservative program should be if we were uh, if we if, if I became mayor 
Can we talk about the land question? Yes. Because as as I understand it, you're, I think I'm right in saying you're opposed to Greenbelt development. Absolutely, 100%, yeah, not I, an inch. I couldn't recall reading something specific, but yes. most people are. You're you're not keen on high-rises. You've talked no. about, you know, the importance of you know, your own front door and the Create yes. Streets model and so on. Yes. And also you want these larger family homes. Yes. Where are we going to put this? I mean, like on the most basic level, without sort of defying the laws of physics or opening the doorway to another dimension or something, where are we going to put these new homes? Well, you can always pile people on top of each other if you think that's a resolution to housing problems. Uh, you can provide warehousing for families or you can provide homes for families. I rather like the idea of people being able to be housed in homes that they love and homes that they want to live in rather than homes that somebody has told them they have to. And that, so on But forgive me, this is restating your, your desired ends rather than the, the means to get there. How are you going to do that? I'll do, I'll do the means. And that, uh, first of all, we've got to change the political target. Uh, Currently, the political target is about the number of front doors you build. It's, and, and that then, uh, means that you're getting smaller and smaller properties in order to meet those political targets. I want to change that to the number of bedrooms that are, that are built. I, I need to persuade government on this as well about these these changes of targets because I'm not interested in a front door. I'm interested in places where they people can live. And London needs those larger family homes. Whichever way you look at it, if you build a larger family home, you're going to end up, because of the churn, as people readjust to their new living environments, you you kind of get a free one-bedroom flat at the end of the process because somebody who was overcrowding that has then been able to move elsewhere. Nobody actually wants tower blocks, uh, apart from those people who want to look down on other Londoners, you know, the, the people who are in the penthouse. They're not particularly popular about uh, amongst Londoners who have to look at them. They've got incredibly high maintenance costs. The service charges for them are extreme. And we haven't yet seen what the lifetime of a, of a, of a residential tower block is in London. Now, you know, that sounds like I've got a real downer on tower blocks. I certainly have in the wrong place. And I am saying that there probably are five areas in London where they work. If you, if you stand, you know, if you go high up in Paris and have a look at the, uh, look at the vista there. It's much a much more organised one than we've got here. If you you basically low rise until you get to La Défense, and then you see the high buildings. Well, we can do that in London. London, though, it's still Paris. It's five, six, seven stories. Yeah, I, I'm not, London is one, two, three. I, absolutely, I, I'm not opposed. Problem, to, I'm not opposed to some of those initiatives that want to take, um, you know, add an extra story, say, on properties in central London, and that's something that London First have put forward before, and filling in the airspace, if you like. You know the uh, of, of 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 central London, and I believe they said actually. I'm guessing here. I think they said it was about forty thousand properties you could get by just putting forty thousand homes you could get just by building on top of those existing ones. That's uh, about eight months' supply, though. That's not very. Much. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. no. Anybody comes here and says I'm going to solve the entire problem mm. with one thing, they're a charlatan and kick them out. You know, these are there are there have got to be a number of initiatives taking place, a number of things taking place into in order to resolve it. For example, one of the very small ones, but it's still something I'm very keen on. And we talk about land value. There's there's tons of bits of land that are in the ownership of TfL and the GLA and the police that uh, you could actually put a few homes on. It's not going to solve all of London's housing problems, but it does so, may be able to solve problems for, say, some self-builders who find themselves being able to afford perhaps the 160000 it costs to build their own home, 
but they can't anywhere near support the value of the land. So what I'm saying is that TfL, if you can get planning permission for any tiny piece of land um, uh, that TfL isn't currently using, then you can build on it and you can do yourself build and you only have to part with the value of the land when you subsequently resell it. That gives the prospect of young families being able to bring their families up in London in a home that they've built for as little as £160,000. These are small initiatives, but they're initiatives that say we can do it. There are things, there's, there's got to be plenty of things taking place. And also, I actually do think that the re- resolution of the southeast housing problems um, is not really helped by the political footprint of the uh, of the GLA not being the same as the economic footprint of the GLA. We have to look to building on uh, land outside London. And I've suggested about 40 garden cities to be developed around London to provide perhaps 10,000 uh, 10, homes each, places where people can live and work, which are good, active, attractive uh, communities, not just dormitories, not just places to put london's problems but actually places people can live and for that london will stump up some of the contribution towards transport infrastructure that makes those work again though this is outside the gla's current boundaries right i mean am i right in thinking you also push the idea of a larger gla yeah yes i am i mean in, in a lot of these problems you don't do on your own you know you don't solve some many of these mm. problems on your own you have to be in partnership with other people we have to be in partnership with the the counties that are around london with the home counties with the government with local authorities everything is about partnership and teamwork the job of the mayor is to be a is to push those programs forward and to use Uh, the mayor's position in order to get these people working together because housing is at crisis it's as simple as that and we are not going to resolve it if we just go for the tried and tested old ways of providing housing um and you know politics has really got in the i'm a great one for politics i believe in politics but uh some of the political targets have really got in the way of of solutions to housing problems in london I want to move on from housing in a second because sure. I, I I could probably talk about this all day. And well, I'm, I could. Yeah, I could. Gonna, this is what I mean. This you is know, a real danger. We just like to I've three hours. I've on been housing. doing this for ten years, talking about housing on the on the assembly and and the different ways it can be solved. So, you know, I'm happy to go on, but I think the <laughs> listeners will probably want to move. There. One one last thing before we leave housing, yeah. though, is probably a, a significant number of the people listening to this who live in London will probably be in private rental accommodation. Yes. What would you do for them? Well, we need to... I, I, I think there's something to be said about the standards of uh, rental accommodation in London. Um, and I would certainly push for the local authorities to behave the right, for example, to be able to find landlords who aren't providing the basics of rental accommodation. So, for example, if the hot and cold, you know, there's no hot water going for a period of time or there's something unsafe, there's, there's uh, health, health issues with the flat, that they should be able to get fixed penalties for doing those basics they can local authorities always all, already have quite a few rights to be able to warn landlords about poor quality housing but there are some things that are missing i do think the local authority because this is a local authority function you know but you can take it all on on the gla if you want but this is a local authority function function and we need to remind local authorities that they are they that, that some of them are really not doing their job with this regard and we need to attract more investment into private 
rental, you know, things like the Qatari Diaz uh, scheme over in on the Olympic Park, on Queen Elizabeth Park. Uh, we need more of that. And more of that is coming, curiously enough. So I'm not saying anything new there, but we should be open to those those continuing. Uh, but just, um, you know, the elephant in the room, if you ever talk to a Labour politician, uh, you know, if we had a, a Labour politician here, would be uh, would be rent control. Simply no. <laughs> um, you might you might be able to control rents uh, prior to the building of a, a of a a scheme and have something mandated in advance and a lot of local authorities are in advance in advance negotiating with private rented organizer uh, organizations provided privately privately rented accommodation to provide sub-market rents but what's what you can't do is impose from outside rent control you just talk to any of the experts we know that if you team um uh if you speak to, for example, Christine Whitehead from the London School of Economics, who's a bit of a housing, uh, no, no, who knows her housing staff, um, she, she came to the uh, uh, London Assembly Housing Committee when we were talking about rent control, and she basically agreed with the phrase, rent control only works where you don't need it. It has the perverse uh, symptoms of actually forcing up rents and reducing the quality and reducing the number of people who are being housed. So really encourage private rental schemes and we want the renters rights to be recognized and they should be enforced in, uh, by local authorities uh, but certainly not rent control hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Let's move on and talk about, I, I, I think one of the, the themes that's emerging with your campaign and indeed the campaigns of anyone who's trying to lay into the current mayor, Sadiq Khan at present, is, is law and order and the rise in violent crime. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Tell us why um, Why do you think that's such an important issue at the moment? Well, it's an important issue because the people in London think it's an important issue and very many feel as though the police have lost control of the streets. And we Do have they, to work uh, on... Or is this they, just a thing though, that's being uh, reported you know, by politicians trying to get them to well, talk about well, this? You know, I've been going around London over the past few weeks as a part of this programme, as a part of this uh, selection process. And yes, that's exactly what they think. Uh, people have actually changed travel plans because they now perceive the streets as being unsafe. Um, and it's all very well people in position saying, oh, they're just being alarmist and it's only a small percentage and all the rest of it. But but uh, the perception of policing is a very important part of policing. The perception of safety is a very important part of policing. So we've got to restore that. I mean, I would hope, you know, it's two years away before I'll be mayor. Um, but... Um, I hope the mayor does something in the meantime, but he's being particularly unjoined up about it. If this is, it's not also about just increasing police numbers. Um, you know, if, if, if increasing police numbers is the solution to violent crime, then, then we might as well increase the number of ambulances in order to solve road accidents. It, it, it's, that's not the relationship. We need more people involved in detecting and alerting authorities to violent behaviour, we need to smash the gangs. And there's tried and tested ways of doing that. In Scotland, they treated the violence there, which was the most violent country in Europe at one point, 
they treated the violence there as a public health emergency. And they pulled all the agencies together in order to work that. So social services, NHS, um, local councils, the police, voluntary organisations, even road sweepers, pulled together to meet this objective of reducing violence, identifying where violence is, has become part of the vocabulary, identifying those people and, and signposting perhaps young people into apprenticeships, to better jobs, to some kind of sporting activity, to all an alternative to the, uh, the the violent activity they were doing. Now, I was I uh, ran a uh, youth club in Hackney uh, for a number of years, right in the middle of an area of of Hackney that was known as as very much under gang influence, the London Fields Boys, as they were called at the time, and. You could tell there that the outlets for some young people, they only saw gang activity as they effectively saw those uh, those gang members as their families. And they didn't see any other activities, any other options to being involved in gang activity. So we have to address that. But you're only going to address that with all the agencies working together. I'm not going to start creating youth clubs from the GLA I'm going to start working with local, local authorities to ensure that they have the kind of provisions in place and we have the communications to solve this stuff. But we ha this comes with a heavy price. And the heavy price is some very tough policing of the gangs. It does require an increase in stop, stop and search because it makes people feel safe. But it's the kind of stop and search for which there is public consent rather than stop and search for which there is public resentment. So... It is a very important that's subject. That's a fine distinction, isn't it? I mean, how do you how do you ensure that's the kind of stop and search with public consent? Con constant training, and I've seen, you know, in my time in in Hackney, I've seen I've seen stop and search take place amongst some of the lads that used to be part of our youth club. And say, may I say, I've seen some good examples, and I've seen some pretty shocking examples. And it's all down to the professionalism of the officers and the training that they've had. But stop and search, you know, when you know people are walking around the streets with knives on them and with acid on them, and then you say, well, we don't want to stop and search because it might ruffle a few feathers. I'm sorry, that's not good enough. You have to use the tools that the officers, or rather officers, have to use the tools available to them in order to keep people safe. But it's seen as, one of the reasons it's sort of seen as so problematic a policy is because there are these sort of racial undertones to the way it's used, aren't yeah. there? And I mean, we need to address that. And there always, and there always have been, going yes. back decades, of the sus laws um, in the 80s. Sure, it's not, sure. How do you, like, how, how do you get around that problem in such a way that you don't, damage the trust of the community well, well because you do it with the community because the, it's often those communities who suffer most from the violence that's taking place so you have to police with the people not against them i must say in some parts of london i've seen it where the the police have become like had become like a kind of hit squad you know from outside the area coming in and then you know what they see as tough policing with stop and search actually that's that's probably not the best way. Uh, but as I say, I've seen it done very respectfully, very politely, um, and always been on the basis of protecting people from danger. So it can be done. It's not impossible. A lot of what we're talking about here, like in terms of both like the you know, cuts in police numbers and you know the decline of like youth services and so on, this is not specific to London, is it? This is just austerity. 
Well, is the London mayor really empowered to well, address a problem that was, let's be honest, created by a national government? Well, the London mayor, I, I know this, I know this excuse, and it's Khan's excuse. To be fair, it's the excuse of most Labour politicians when they're put, put, when they you put them under pressure. He it's, hasn't made it, this up. It's this not is, my fault. The cuts it, were it, real. Hold on, it's not my fault. It's all the government's fault. Now that's fine. He may have that opinion, and we could always do with more money. Who couldn't? But if that's an excuse for not doing anything, I would submit that he should make way for somebody who wants to do something with the resources he's got. And one thing we do know about police officers at the moment is they spend an awful lot of their time sitting behind desks filling out forms. I want to see them out on the street giving people reassurance that the police are there for them. And the way to do that is to provide more admin support, effectively PAs for PCs, um, and that's something I'll be pushing for. I also happen to think that we've neglected the contribution that PCSOs make to uh, keeping Londoners safe. Um, and often PCSOs can go places police officers can't. I remember speaking to some of our lads in uh, in the youth club and who would never dream of speaking to a police officer, quite frankly, especially those that are involved in gangs, never dream of speaking to a police officer. They were much less reluctant to speak to a PCSO because they knew the PCSO couldn't arrest them. And that developed, that meant that you got that interaction with some young, young people who otherwise we wouldn't have been connecting with. So I should specify for anyone who doesn't know, PCSO, oh, PCSO. is Police Community Support Officer. Right? Yeah. Yes, it's one of those FLAs, four-letter acronyms. <laughs> Sorry. Let's do transport. Okay. So so as as we record this, the, the great tragic news broke quite recently that Crossrail is going to be delayed by a year. So, so you know, everyone in the London transport community is probably wearing a black armband at the moment. But if you were mayor, what would your transport priorities be? I think, I think tragedy is the wrong word. I kind of, you want to use the word for tragedy that, that, that isolated for, th- th- used for things that were unexpected. I mean, they no, came... the, be- the best tragedies are horrifically inevitable from the start. Oh, yeah, well, that's you know, possibly Shakespearean. Shakespeare, yes. yes, well, fair enough. I, I'll accept, <laughs> I'll accept that correction. It's just that, you know, this is an, this actually is a proof to one of my policies that has been <laughs> that has been uh, uh, lampooned by some others, and that is I want to split up TFL. And people say, well, why would you want to split up TFL? Because you know, surely it's much easier to hold it to account if it's one big organisation in one place. Well, no, actually, this is proof of the pudding. Um, is that I fear that the the pressures of the operational arm and the funding of the operational arm actually resulted in people not coming being forthcoming about the prospects of meeting that December opening time for Crossrail. I think that TfL does need to be broken up. It's far too big. You know, the, the rumour is that the Mayor of London runs TfL. I, I think actually the opposite is probably true. And we need to get to grips with it. So I, I will split it out. The uh, infrastructure side of it will report directly to me, separately from the operational side. And we'll start to see then some kind of traction. But the cross, and you know, let, let's not forget what a disaster to Crossrail is. It's not just a tragedy, it's a disaster. There will have been people, small businesses taking out leases around those stations on the anticipation of it opening in December and getting the footfall from that. They know won't, well, now won't be getting those foot, that footfall for nine months. It's disastrous for some of those. It's disastrous for all the other people who are anticipating, whose business was, was, was anticipating that December opening 
I actually think there's grounds here for legal action, either against TfL or Crossrail. Only in June, TfL came to the London Assembly and reassured us that they would meet the December deadline. They were quite certain about that, despite the fact that in February we had said to them, do you think there's some risk? We, we were concerned that there was some risk of this slipping. And for, for something to slip with a year to go, I can understand. For something to slip with three months to go, I just absolutely cannot understand why that's the case. So I, I, I think we, we need to interrogate this a lot more than it's been looked at at the moment. But these things do slip, don't they? I they mean, do actually, slip. Cross, like Crossrail has actually been unusual in how well it's been seemed to have gone. Well, it obviously hasn't, has it? It obviously hasn't. So something has been concealed from the public about the readiness of this scheme. And I think that warrants some attention by the law. Because, as I say, a lot of people are now going to be severely inconvenienced by this. And it makes me wonder whether or not we've been hearing entirely the most honest story that we could have been hearing. Let's move on from Crusher and talk about what what would your... What would you, else would you want to do with the transport system? Well, I've been. I always think that a transport system should be boring. You know, totally boring. That the you're same. N- you're not going to win over my listeners with that. Attitude. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's not. It's not great to geeks, but it's gr- It's not. <laughs> it's terribly good to. You know, passengers want the idea that the same bus is going to turn at the same time at the same day, and there's going to be no eventful incidents on their journey into work and. It should be as unnoticeable as possible. Transport should just be a way of getting to where you need to be in order to carry on your life. I think one of the things we do need to attend to is the investment into infrastructure, first of all, in transport. Because we've got the structure that we have with TfL, if TfL say you can't do it, then it doesn't happen. We've got that top-down type of approach to uh, uh, transport infrastructure. I, I want to change that because there's a couple of schemes like the extension of the Croydon tram and the extension of the DLR down to Bromley, which which they've just said, no, not viable, not possible, can't do it. I actually think that, that we should have another way of looking at those, imp, imp, uh, those schemes. So in certain cases, I'll be setting up uh, local infrastructure trusts and they'll, they'll be staffed and um, they, they will be basically composed of local residents, the local business improvement districts, the councillors, in order to pick up such, such these improvements, like, for example, the DLR extension to Bromley North, and work them through at a local level more than they are being worked through at TfL. Um, and certainly the people in the land of Bile probably feel like they haven't got very far with TfL in terms of the, getting this scheme to some kind of preparedness. And there were financial challenges and those local infrastructure trusts working on behalf of the mayor with the guarantor, financial guarantors of the GLA will be able to move the project forward a lot more than if we just wait for TfL to do it. So that's in transport infrastructure. In terms of the operational side of things, we need to realise that the unions have a stranglehold over the transport system. And there's a number of things I want to do that I can do and some things I need the existence of government for. What I can do is move over to driverless operation. 
Um, and I will start enthusiastically the move towards driverless operation, first of all, on the Jubilee line, which is almost driverless anyway. Incidentally, uh, driverless no- doesn't mean that, uh, that there is nobody on the, tr- on the train who's there to uh, look after people in the event of an incident. There's always be stewards or train captains who are on, on board to look after the safety of, of passengers. Uh, but driverless operation works perfectly well in so many other places. I don't, I, it's madness not to proceed with it. The what, thing I can't deal with is to be able to effectively ban strikes on the underground. The underground is such an important uh, service to the lives of many Londoners that I feel it's it's one of those areas where it should be actually illegal to uh, to strike however the payment back for that is that i do think that any future pay review for tube drivers should be arbitrated by a judge and so that rather than uh the extensive negotiation that takes place uh for those who are interested um it, it will be uh, a system whereby the, the the union's bid gets as much attention as the uh, as, as the offer from from tfl and also on the operation of the, or sorry, on the infrastructure, um, I just want to see a, a London that's more busy, especially in South London, about bringing forward these new schemes. Because I think London is the engine of the British economy. If we can't move around this city adequately, then it's the London, the British economy that suffers. So we've not really talked about this cycling. Where does that fit into your vision? Are you, are you a cyclist? Are you pro? Well, yeah, I, I'm multimodal, so part of my journey here today was cycling, and uh, I cycle most places. Um, so that's me, but it's not all about me, curiously enough. Uh, cycling has to fit into the transport system, and we must provide more facilities for safe cycling in London. But what's been happening over the past few years is we've had we've had an approach by tfl which is actually resulted in a loss a a reduction of support for cycling schemes because of their rather intransigent view of residents comments on any new routes and on on any new initiatives and i regret that and i've been involved in a number of those whereby simple suggestions by residents for perhaps adopting a slightly different route or perhaps um you know or or you know a slightly different manner in which you provide uh the scheme have just been dismissed out of hand and residents of fa- are suddenly looking at some residents who were previously sympathetic to the improvement in cycling schemes and now looking at the cyclists as the enemy. No, you know, I don't think there is such a thing as a cyclist. There's just people who use cycles, you know, people who use bicycles. Um, and, and, but that's, that's the mode of thinking at the moment due to the manner in which TFL have introduced some of these cycle superhighways, CS9, CS11. They've all had real problems trying to get the community on their side. And if the community is not on your side, there's always going to be obstacles to these kinds of development. I mean, I re- of course, you know, you're, you're as a politician seeking the, the votes of the public, you can't come out and say that the, the communities are ever wrong. But um, no, I can, no, no, and I think yeah. they sometimes are. I mean, well, I, possibly, I, I think but, 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 in, in certain bits of town, not mentioning, not mentioning yeah. any Kensington and Chelsea's in particular, yeah. 
Um, there is such intransigence that I don't think it's anything to do with how well, TFL is handling you, you, You're this, going to have to leave me and take me by the hand to these places because whenever I've been involved in any of these schemes, there has been a reasonable resident saying, this is why we want the route slightly different here. And some of them are quite reasonable. As to whether or not residents can be wrong, well, we can all be wrong. But what's very important, the residents should be heard. And sometimes it sounds as though... Uh, sometimes there's an attitude that that those residents if they don't agree with us shouldn't be heard that's not democracy we should be we've we've been going quite a while so we should be wrapping up but just a couple of things very quickly um in uh your your discussion with conservative home you talked about ending sadiq khan's war on the motorcyclist and i wasn't i wasn't aware of this one what's What's well, the war on the motorcyclist well, the been and how the, you end it? The war on the motorcyclist is prior to the election, he promised that the, the motorcyclist would be part of the solution to congestion in London, part of the, the, the transport matrix, if you like. The tran- uh, and after the election, of course, now the London plan is basically saying that they don't want people to mo- use their motorcycles. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous because if more people got out of their cars into motorcycles, onto motorcycles, they would, they, they would uh, be a huge contribution to removing uh, congestion in London and they they allow people to have mobility Um, there is a war against motorcyclists it's as simple as that you only have to read the London plan it has a very dim view of anybody who decides to drive any kind of motorized two-wheel transport Uh, yeah there is a war and but I intend to ensure one of the things I want to do is to is to say to those boroughs and ask those boroughs who currently don't allow motorcycles to use bus lanes to reconsider it seems daft that you can take your motorbike through London and on the TfL uh, by uh, bus lanes you can use them and then all of a sudden it becomes a local bus lane and you can't and then you receive a fine that's ridiculous we need to also have a, a lot more concentration on si- motorcyclist safety as well um, and and the same kind of focus that we have on cyclist safety too these are people who are choosing to come into london or to use uh, a form of transport that they uh, that they want to use and it's a contribution to reducing uh, air pollution in London, not increasing, reducing air pollution in London, reducing congestion. And actually, I think they should be supported. One other quote from the same interview I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you, you said you would reject Khan's thinly veiled war on the suburbs, which aims to turn outer London into inner London. What did you mean by that? I meant that he's removing the uh, protections for back gardens from development, which was introduced after the London Wildlife Trust uh, warned the previous mayor about how wildlife is suffering as a result of overdevelopments of the uh, back gardens in London. Uh, It means that uh, he has uh, effectively said to outer London boroughs who believe they should be building more family housing in their own plans, he's eventually said, scrap that, you've got to build 60% or should be one-bedroom flats. He's, rem- he's encouraged the development of high-rise. He's encouraging the conversion of larger homes into smaller ones. And this is nothing short of a war on the suburbs. It is as simple as that. And it doesn't take a lot of reading of the draft London plan to come to that conclusion. I will end that war because I love London in all its parts. And that, those suburbs in which I was born are as important as the inner London in which, to which I moved um, and, uh, and, and the tourist spots that are there. 
it, it all makes up London. And we are going to lose that distinction if the draft London plan has the benefit of a second Khan term. I mean, there is a danger this sounds like you know, developers are going to be like, you know, stealing people's back gardens in the middle of the night. That's not that's not where we're going. It's like it's about opening up opportunities, surely. It's about stealing people's back gardens in the middle of the night. Well, no it's not stealing their back gardens. No, no, so, your your neighbour your your neighbour will be only, only too happy to sell their back garden to a developer. And that the effect that that has on your quality of life, they will be only too happy. And the only thing protecting you against that uh, neighbour who wants to take the money and run is currently the protection in back gardens. It's a really... Po- talk to anybody involved in life, in wildlife corridors, um, the green cover in, in London, which is really important to us. And they, we're losing it at a rapid rate in outer London. One last thing to wrap up. I think London electorate does seem to have swung quite visibly to the left in, in recent years, or possibly not to the left exactly more, as we've seen with the slow-motion realignment of British politics and the Tories that have become the sort of party of, of Brexit, for want of a better word. Um, Labour's position in London looks more secure than it did 10 years ago. This is going to be a difficult... And you're pro-Brexit as well, aren't you? This is going to be a difficult election, surely. I, I, I really don't think so. I mean, what we're talking about, we're talking 10 years ago, we had a, a huge victory in London. So 2008, we had a huge victory in London. Uh, yeah, it's not been so good uh, recently. However, the anticipated disaster of the local elections proved not to be the disaster that everybody assumed. Um, what we have a problem with in the Conservative Party, without doubt, is that we have an enterprising, forward-looking, um, liberal electorate who articulate everything that the Conservative Party is about. And yet we have been unable to tie... And and when you talk to people about those views, about our views as Conservatives, um, people say, yeah, I agree with that. You know, this... this, Talk to the public about, you know, um, the the, the rights for Uber drivers to be able to earn a living and, and, and be enterprising... And Londoners tend to say, yeah, you know, actually, I do think they have a right to do that. It's the socialists that don't want them, people to succeed. And they agree with us. And then we show them our party label. And, of course, they, many of them then say, oh, well, I can't support you. That's a problem for our party. It's a problem for our mayoral campaign. And it's a problem I intend to solve. Andrew Boff, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Andrew Boff, member of the Greater London Assembly and one of the three candidates on the shortlist to, to run for London Mayor for the Tories in 2020. We'll be back tomorrow with, with part two of this particular podcast in which we're going to hear from his rival for that role, Joy Morrissey. See you then. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and produced by me, John Ellidge. If you enjoyed the episode, then please do consider leaving us an iTunes review. It really helps other people to discover the show. And, you know, the more people get listening to the show, the sooner I can achieve my real goal of world domination for the medium of trains. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com